Clay had mentioned in the previous episode, EB was left out of the Deadwood season that we're currently watching, uh, that this episode, Childish Things, has one of my favorite quotes of, uh, of all time. And it doesn't have the Swearingen's um, talk about pain and despair not ending the world. But it does have something related, which is that um, me and Amy just got an e-bike which has been fun. Um, so she rides it to work, and I just got to put around on it. Um, that she was a- rides it from Worcester to Mass to Mass General. No, she doesn't work. She works at um, UMass. Oh, I thought now. she. Oh, so I thought she worked at Mass General. She worked at uh, Faulkner for a while, Br- uh, Brigham. But um, yeah, she works at UMass, so she has to go and ride across the city, the city to get there. And uh, it's been fun. And though everyone's very enamored with the bicycle, like the the e-bike when they come around they're like how does it work they're everyone's kind of scared of it and they always want to ride it and it always gives me my best uh my best opportunity when someone says can they ride the e-bike i say corruption won't never be stinky on my bicycle and then they go what the fuck are you talking about and i hand them the e-bike and they get to ride around on it but what's this- the you gotta start using the other line where he's like yours is not the hands nor the feet <laughs> Or something like that. <laughs> this is a great Tom Nuttall episode in Childish yeah, Things. He has, uh, he has those who doubt me suck cock by choice, which is such a good line. He says it twice, although the second time it seems like it has <laughs> diminishing returns. Uh, and then he says, corruption won't never breathe stinky on my bicycle, which is uh, it, a classic. It really is a new way to call someone a cocksucker. And it's like, it's a very effective inversion. It's like a... It's like a it's like how Mozart would take a theme and then invert the theme and it's like, oh, that's 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 brand new. It's new. Yep. Yep. No, it's all about uh you know, after how many well, this is the twentieth episode, I think, of Deadwood at this point. So this at this juncture you're gonna have to start inverting things and making things different, which I guess is a great thematic way to tie into what this episode does. This episode is called Childish Things, and we're gonna break it down right after this. You're listening to a podcast that is a lie agreed upon. Join Wes and Clay as they discuss HBO's Deadwood and tell you something pretty. Childish Things is the eighth episode of the second season of Deadwood, directed by Timothy Van Patten, right off of his uh, Sopranos work, written by Regina Corrado, whose uh, first script is this one. Al calls a sit-down with Bullock to enlist him in, quote, the coming campaign, end quote. To not grab an ankle is to take a position, he explains. (laughs) Walcott writes to George Hurst that he has consolidated many claims and that on his arrival he will see, quote, the largest and most forward-looking gold operation in the world. Tom Nuttall's bone shaker bicycle arrives in town. Martha Bullock proposes that she take over the education of the camp's children. Al summons Miss Isenhausen to his office and agrees to sign a document stating that he instructed Dan Doherty to kill Brom Garrett at Alma's behest. Calamity Jane vomits on the boardwalk in front of Utter's Fright. Nuttall's bicycle proves out on the streets of Deadwood. Ellsworth calls on the widow Garrett and offers himself as a candidate for marriage. Walcott visits Joni at the Chez Ami and is chased off by Jane. Um... That's not really true. She doesn't really chase him off. She arrives no, too late. She, to, she chases him off the way that she chases off Al when he comes in to kill the kill yeah. the, uh, the little girl. Although with she's a little bit more uh, <clears throat> believable. In yes, her, uh, she's more driven by purpose. This one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. You know, it's funny. I recognize the name Tim Van Patten, the director. Yep, but I couldn't remember from where. And uh, he is 
It's a very Batman-y He's, sounding name to me. I always think of Batman for some reason for Tim Van Patten. I'm not sure why. Uh, that's interesting because there's Dick Van Patten. Oh, is that a Batman is, character? No, Dick Van Patten is. Uh, he's the guy. <laughs> he plays the king in Spaceballs. Okay. Yep. And uh, the sorry, the, it's the he, character. Or it's the actor who who plays this. the actor. The okay. actor's name is Dick Van Patten. Yep. And he plays the the king in Spaceballs, the Space King. And but he is similar looking to Pat Hingle. Okay. Who plays Commissioner Gordon in wow. the, the 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 first four Batman movies? So I don't know if maybe your brain's doing like a leap there. Yeah, doing Ooh. that sort of like subconscious <laughs> jumping. But uh, Tim, Jim Tim Jim Gordon Patton. was in a uh, Kevin Bacon movie called yes. Yeah Eyes Wide Open or something. Yeah. Uh, Tim Van Patten in his early years was the uh, the the villain, if you want to call it that, the lead villain in the movie class of 1984 which is a uh classic grindhouse movie sorry and this is I, the character name this is not the director of this episode no 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 this is the director oh the director the, the, of the episode okay yes he played he played the the lead villain in this movie class of 1984 i forget what the character's name is um which is a very fun movie about a teacher who has to go in and and uh teach at a very intense school and it turns into a, a bloodbath uh it was remade with michelle pfeiffer in 1993 yeah it's, it's it's the most it's the most uh exploitation version of that story where instead of like teaching the kids to is it a white through, teacher who goes into a minority school oh yeah it's okay. it's mostly white people it's frankly just mostly white people it's oh, not okay. it's not as uh <laughs> div- it's not as diverse as it would get later on but gotcha. uh, instead of teaching them to save the rec center through dance he just like ends up killing a bunch of them yeah um but uh, how do I reach these keys? As they say in the, <laughs> in the South Park episode, it also it also features a young Michael J. Fox. It was one of his first movies. Oh, okay, there we go. Uh, but yeah, check Michael out Class of 1984. It's a pretty pretty weird movie. Yeah, it's it's similar. I know this is a huge tangent, but yep. uh, it reminds me of <clears throat> Nick Nick Cassavetes, who is the director of such movies as uh, The Notebook and other movies in that ilk. Mm-hmm. Uh, by that same author, uh, who also started his career as an actor playing the like teenage tough villain in a movie called The Wraith, okay. starring Charlie Sheen, where he turns into Charlie Sheen gets killed, and then he comes back to life basically as Ghost Rider, but he drives like a a souped up weird like Camaro instead of oh. riding a motorcycle. <laughs> Does he have a flaming head? Anyway, this, okay. no he. <laughs> He just wears he just wears a, a motor like a bike helmet. Gotcha. But he drives this crazy suit on the car. Anyway, facts. this has been this has been Grindhouse Corner with Clay. So now we can talk about uh, this episode of Deadwood. Yeah. Well, I mean that's a lot of that's a lot of movies you listed here that no one's ever going to watch. Yeah. For. The Wraith. The Wraith is ve- both of those movies are very fun. Yeah. The Wraith is very fun. It's it's definitely like an it's, it's like a second tier '80s sci-fi. It might be third tier '80s sci-fi horror movie. Yep. Um, with uh, one of the girls from Twin Peaks is in it, Cheryl and Fenn. Um. Anyway. Hmm. Well, you have you have you all have your homework. There, yeah, we'll we'll be covering these on our Patreon uh, exclusive episodes, patreon.com slash the Penske file if you want to support the show. Uh, yeah, this is childish things. 
Which, Nick Cassavetes, also the son of John Cassavetes, the guy, the director and actor who is in uh, The Dirty Dozen and Rosemary's Baby. Anyway, okay, go ahead. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, that's Cassavetes, right? The, the mm-hmm. Rosemary's, yes, okay, that explains. So it, was, it the, runs in the family, I suppose, to varying degrees of success. <laughs> um, childish Things, and now I'm, I'm actually stuck thinking about what is the name of that author of those books? It's a male name. Nicholas Sparks, Sparks, I think. right? Yeah, yeah, Sparks, that's it. Um. This is Childish Things, the latest episode of Deadwood, as I mentioned. The first episode from Regina Carrado, who had gone on to become one of Milch's uh, more trusted writers. This is she was uh, also she was also a UFC fighter, right? And she ended up on The Mandalorian. Yeah, that's <laughs> with some with some uh, gender neutral or gender offensive top uh, Twitter right. bios or whatever. Beep certain, boop. certain thoughts about the Holocaust that maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Should have kept to herself. Well, did she have thoughts about the Holocaust? I only remember. No, just- it, no, it was she posted some Holocaust meme likening it to like the fact that she couldn't. Oh, she know, couldn't speak. Say so. the N word yeah, or something. Yeah, she had been right. She's been Holocausted. <laughs> yeah, no, I only remember that she uh, she used the beep bop boop or were her pronouns or whatever. Um, the hell was I talking about? Oh, Childish Things is Corrado. This is Corrado's first uh, script, which is kind of a Milchian story. She was a she was a house sitting for Liz Sarnoff, who's a writer on the series, and Milch offered her just an internship, sight unseen. She had been writing off Broadway plays, and she just got involved with the show somehow in sort of this David Milch type story about um, him being generous for random reasons, for extreme, uh, for or like in extreme ways, and she quickly worked her way into the writers' room and eventually came up with this script, which is her first. Um, and also, I was just reading in the, the Deadwood Bible about the way that the production tended to work is that the writers basically functioned as uh, less script writers on this show and more like researcher uh, plot line developers. So the, their jobs are sort of to like come up with storylines, come up with ways that they could link um, images and scenes together uh, mm-hmm. and advance them somehow and then give those ideas to Milch who would basically sort of write out the scripts himself and or like sort of uh, dictate his scripts to one of his assistants as they were sort of walking around on the sets. Um, oh, weird. So it, it, Ted Mann. That it, sounds like satisfying work. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's. I mean, Ted Ted Mann is the writer we've seen on the show who's that cigar chomping guy who's always in Nuttles Bar um, and he's been oh, in a sure. couple episodes. He's one of the writers, but uh, the Deadwood Bible was just going on about how his strength was sort of research and that a lot of his ideas – including like Al getting sick from kidney stones and stuff like that was his uh, research that was just directly put into the episodes. Um, but anyway, this is Childish Things, which is takes its name from uh, the biblical passage that Cy mangled in the last episode. He misquoted it. It's from Corinthians, and it says, When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Um, one Corinthians or two Corinthians? Thirteen, eleven. What does that mean? Does that mean? I guess it is one Corinthians. That's There's a one the in front verse. of it. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, the, the ver- <laughs> it's verse eleven, yeah, right? What, what former it- former president's favorite book of the Bible? Two Corinthians. <laughs> <laughs> two Corinthians walk into a bar. Helmed by Tom Nuttall. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's about um, there's a lot going on, and I like this episode. It's a I think that this episode would be considered um, filler if you were being um, dismissive of it. I think, but what I think it does is it resets a lot of things, and it sort of mm. pauses the show for a bit to reestablish storylines and to sort of 
shake up the snow globe a little bit and see where things come out. Um, obviously, one of the themes is this idea of putting away childish things, which manifests itself in a bunch of different plot lines. Um, I guess I was wondering if I, I had a question for you. Were you? Um, I was just trying to think of uh, childish things that I have put away behind myself, mm. and I was wondering if you had any. Um, I can say a couple as you were as you're thinking. I remember when I was younger, um, I used to think that like the vast majority of the population must be competent at things, <laughs> which I used to be. I used to be impressed that people could like get mortgages. You know, I was like, wow, sure. what an adult. Like you, yeah. you got like a loan, like you got a bank to give you a loan. And now, uh, after we lived through 08 and stuff like that, you realize that like literally anybody can get a mortgage, uh, mm. whether or not you're qualified to do it is another story. Um, there's other things like you can, um, when I was younger, I used to always think it always made me tremendously unhappy because I used to think that I could convince people to do stuff. Like I could sort of talk them into my ideas basically. <laughs> and that just <laughs> always backfires on you. Um, and then the, the final one is always just that, uh, when I was younger, I was, um, unmotivated in a way that I think a lot of younger people are, but just like, I kind of expected that things would just happen. And it's like, you're, you're sort of owed things like things should come to you. And, uh, if you're just kind of there, things should happen to you and getting frustrated when they don't. And then you're like, Oh, you actually have to like put some oomph into you you have to try basically to to get stuff to uh come to nothing comes out of nothing you really have to put in some effort to make it pay off for you but did you have anything do you have any things that you've grown out of put those childish things behind you well first of all if i'm following you your your childish thing was the hope of getting a mortgage no that came true did you <laughs> did you have did you have toys when you were a kid? My child, but my. Or did you just have like your parents' old bank book or something you got to play with? <laughs> Listen, I'm old enough where my parents were balancing the checkbook, and that taught me the value. Oh, yeah, me too. Of knowing what it was, my mother sitting by candlelight balancing the I, checkbook at night. I can tell you, I can tell you, I am also old enough for to have watched my parents balance a checkbook. And my <laughs> thought, my thought was. Ah, I don't ever want to do that. I'm just going to wait that out. And you know what? It worked. I'm just <laughs> Someone will come up with an AI program that'll stop that from happening. You just, the, the solution is make enough money. I, but my problem was I thought I would just make enough money by not doing anything, just hoping for it. Hmm. The power of positive thoughts or whatever that nonsense book told us. Yeah, I've always, I've always thought that that line from the Bible to be like... Uh, feel like a personal attack on me as i look around my room filled with uh toys more action more action <laughs> figures than i had when i was a child comic yeah. books and you know other pop culture ephemera uh so i don't know if i've ever truly done that mm. uh for better or worse yeah it's true i mean it is a uh what do you? I don't, do I don't you, play baseball anymore that <laughs> i chew real tobacco not bubble gum yeah do you, uh, I guess there's like, do you, do you ever, do you buy into the argument that like we're an infantilized generation in that way? Um, we didn't have a war, right? Like not really. Well, I mean, we did, we, we did. We, we never we had, just, a, we, we never just, had a We didn't draft. have a draft. Yeah. yeah. That's the difference. We didn't have a draft. Yeah. We had a pretty, we had a war that lasted 20 years. Wes. Well, <laughs> but it was a war. It was, it was a war against an idea as opposed to like a, a, a sort of sure, like place. Sure. Although I guess you could say that communism no, was yeah, the Vietnam idea. Was in Vietnam was about communism. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we had to go somewhere, but we never had a, 
like the vast majority or a significant amount of our population or of our age never had to fight in anything. It's rare when we when I run into someone my age who served in the Middle East sure. or something like that. Sure. Yeah, you know, I don't know cuz I mean, I think I think on the one hand it, it depends on how I think it depends on how you look at that stuff because if you are still being capable but you also like to spend part of your money on like, you know, Batman action figures or something. Then mm-hmm. who's who's to who's to argue about what you do with your time and your money, you know? Mm-hmm. Um I don't know. I mean, I think there there might be a larger economical argument there based on you know, the uh all all of the stuff regarding like how difficult it is to buy a house now and all that kind of crap. Yep. Um that there's a, a certain focus on 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 other things, but I don't know. I don't know if it would. Inf- We've delayed. Like people do things yeah. older now. Like people have kids True. and buy houses. Like not when they're right. eighteen at this point. It's when you're in the late twenties, early thirties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think it depends on 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 uh, maybe a little bit. I don't know if I would necessarily say it's a bad thing, but I, I do. I, I think it comes out in a negative way when you get onto the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, because you've got people, uh, let's just put it this way. All the people who are starting fights and, um, getting really aggressive about things like Star Trek or Star Wars or whatever. Yep. Most of those people are not young people. <laughs> if I had to make a guess. <laughs> yeah. That's the strange. Well, I guess, well, I don't know. I don't have kids that are that. I don't know what kids are getting emotional about nowadays, really. Although yeah. what did I get emotional it's true. I never really, when I was younger, I never cared about things. Did I care? I get, I, well, I don't think so. Do you? Did, did you have stronger opinions about things when you were younger in that sense? No. No. I, no. I like, there's a certain point where you, I, I didn't have strong opinions about stuff like that until I got, um, right in that pocket of being like a late teenager where you think people give a shit about what you think about this stuff. Yeah. And you think and that's when too. all, yeah. that's when all of a sudden I was like, you know, the star Wars prequels are actually pretty bad. <laughs> well, if you're going to go- and literally everyone was like, Oh, tell me more. <laughs> I thought you're going to go the other way, which is that you're like, they're actually pretty good. And just because you're trying, no, that's, trying too hard now, you know, I don't know if I'm just naturally contrarian or something, but my, my famous take, now is that phantom menace is the best one which i always love to say and watch people's heads wither in your presence yeah um but yeah it's uh, yeah i think the internet is 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 obviously um like i i feel like any those opinions that i had i would bark about them with my friends and then that's kind of where it ended yeah um but now people seem to make like entire personalities out of them which is a little troubling to me but uh i guess that's a childish thing you've put away you know sure yeah i mean i'll still get <laughs> i i'm i'm a hypocrite when it comes to that stuff because i remember i was at a convention one time a comic convention and i was out to dinner with some friends and like half the table was my age or older and the other half of the table was like a couple years younger than me and younger yep and the younger half of the table really started laying in on the Star Wars prequels in a way that I like remember doing when I when sure. it was they were out when you know when we were like in our teens or whatever <laughs> when they were contemporary films yeah, yeah. yeah instead of classics. and I just got like so tired <laughs> that I and I like looked at the other two people I was with who were on the older side and they both had this look on their face where it was just like man yeah fucking fucking kids man 
was changed. So it's, you know, but at the same time, I have since then, of course, you know, that was before we did our podcast, which I'm sure I laid into those movies quite a bit. I don't remember. Yes. Yeah. Well, but it was still, it was, um, I think the thing that's changed for me in that regard is that, uh, I don't hold the knowledge as ammunition anymore. Like Mm -hmm. I, particularly in the things like the, um, uh, like the Star Trek podcast and the movies like the prequels and stuff. My my only knowledge of what I thought about them is this vague cloud. Like I, I no longer sure. hold on to the specific facts that I can whip out about like why they're not good or why I don't like them. Yeah. I, I yeah. if someone says why don't you like it, I just go, I just remember thinking it was terrible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but when I was younger, I feel like I used to be able to like hit my bullet list oh, of, of like course. all that yeah. stuff and yeah. it, it just goes honestly. Away. It goes the other way too with me with that stuff because like I I think one of the things that I don't know if I would say I've put this away, but I, I think like maybe Mother Nature and just the ravages of time have put this away for me. But there was a time where every movie that I watched and every bit of trivia about that movie was like hardwired into my brain. Yeah, yeah. Like it was just it's that point in your life where just like everything you take in is just hard. You know, some people use that for productive things like i don't know becoming doctors or yeah learning how to do the stock market or something yeah. but Jew- i was taking like their no. jewish lessons yeah i was like no this space needs to be taken up by uh x-men continuity and trivia about the <laughs> evil dead series <laughs> and so you know like that's the stuff where i that was just locked and loaded at all times yeah and now i feel like everything that i watch is as much as i may or may not like it is like in and out, in one ear, out the other ear. Yes. Or in one eye, out the other eye. Yep. And uh, it's weird because I, I, I kind of miss it. I miss having that grasp on it. But at the other, on the other hand, part of me is like, who gives a shit? No, no one's, yeah. no one's going to ask you about the aspect ratio problems they had on the first Evil Dead movie or something. You know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know that's not the. You know that's not the original ending to Blade Runner, right? It's like, I, no, dude, nobody fucking cares. Smash cut to you on Jeopardy, sweating profusely as that category comes up. I know, uh, but that, it's just that that kind of stuff where it's like that. I I have I have, um, as I've gotten older, I would say my my opinions about that stuff have definitely softened. And I've I've definitely kind of turned more to 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 a like you know if you like it that's great if you don't that's great yeah um, I have my own personal opinions which I do you know I, I'll I I will <laughs> we have we have multiple podcasts <laughs> which I will so clearly clearly I yeah clearly I still enjoy weaponizing it from time to time but like I I'm not going to. If I if I talk to you about for ten minutes about something that I hated and you're like you know you know I actually thought that was pretty good I'm not going to hold it against you or anything it's like cool great yeah maybe you just need the reps of the the when you're younger the you get your reps in about trying to argue that stuff and then you, it yeah. takes you twenty years to realize be like ah fuck I'm not going to win this and it doesn't matter at right all. yeah uh, childish things what did you think about this one fucking hate no just kidding uh, uh, I was good I actually I was. Um, I've again as we we kind of I don't know if this is going to be a recurring segment where I I try to remember if I if I reached this episode in my previous watch but yep. I, I vaguely remember this one. Oh, um that's weird. From the uh the the bike thing seemed oh, okay. Yep. vaguely memorable to me. Um but man, I really I love the bike stuff. Yeah. I thought the bike <laughs> stuff was great. Like I was so I was so tickled by how tickled the entire 
town was by the bike stuff. Yeah. You know, like it, it, it was just something that was even, and the cherry on top was even Walcott was into yeah, it. He smiles. Yeah. Yeah. Like I thought that's, that was so great because it's, the show is so dour and so bleak and violent that to have everybody sort of rally around this stupid bike thing mm-hmm. was just, it was, it was really, um, I was really amusing and I, and it was really uh, touching isn't the right word, but it, it was, uh, it was the right amount of sweetness for yeah. this kind of show. Do you suppose had the inventor moved among us, he'd have made a model more suited to sink holes? A guy didn't pedal the right, she'll roll smooth as a ball on a green. <laughs> Yours ain't the fucking hands or the fucking feet. So, this is the famous place of death. At that very table, Mr. Blasinoff, while Bill Hickok was shot. I read the account, perhaps from your hand. My bicycle! Masters Boardwalk and Quagmire with a plum. Those that doubt me, suck up by choice. Does that signal a willingness to wager? You're goddamn right. In specie or fucking currency. Surely odds must differ between Quagmire and Boardwalk. I don't speak of the Quagmire lengthwise. Well, shall Quagmire be the belly union gap of the main thoroughfare? Done. Eight to one odds on a quagmire. I shall swoop across it. Eight to one, taken to a hundred. Even money on the boardwalk. Done. Taken to a hundred. Loose boards to be nailed. Commerce suspended. Animals, drunks, and sundries cleared from my lane of passage. Done. May I have time to ready my camera, Tom? Get going. I'll make fresh plates and new soft bath. Whatever the fuck that means. How, Mr. Blazanoff? What has just happened? Those who doubt me suck cock by choice. <laughs> you know, the town, for all of its struggles, the show is still showing you that the town is coming together. And a lot of the plot lines in this are kind of yeah. metaphorical aspects of that. But it, it's a moment when, as you're saying, like despite all of the you know, horrific stuff that has happened and the sadness that's running through various plot threads and stuff like that, there are these small moments of glee and it's something that i always you know deadwood came about in peak tv era and i I think that the true peak tv when this was considered like prestige television understood this stuff and i've I've mentioned it before but like eventually the shows that came after the peak tv just kind of thought that you just had to be bleak endlessly and like there was no moment in any show where you're allowed to be happy or like Characters just must wallow in misery for 10 episodes, and then it ends. And uh, Deadwood and Sopranos and The Wire and stuff, I think, did a really great job of understanding that even in the darkest of times, there's still levity to be found in small moments. Yeah, yeah. I I think it's uh, like a lot of things that are, um, for lack of a better term, revolutionary. I think people tend to take the wrong lesson from it. Yeah. Um, the obvious lesson is the one that usually gets copy pasted over and over right. again. Yeah, like the in the in the eighties when um, Alan Moore and, and Frank Miller were doing Dark Knight Returns and and Watchmen, the thing the thing everybody took from it was oh, okay, so bleak and gritty and the heroes just like kill everybody, no problem. It's like no, that's not what made these things good, you know. Yep. Yep. Um, but uh, what I like about this too, though, is it stays true to the show, where it has this very um, fun, light 
thing for everybody to do. But while that's happening, there's also a murder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a, a, bro- a brother. Gunshots. Yeah. Brother yeah. killing another brother. Yeah. And I love that stuff too. I like, I love the scene after he kills his brother when they're over at the, in the, um, uh chinatown yeah and he's like freaking out about it and walcott's trying to like come like that was really good you know it just it had i this one had a nice kind of swing of 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 emotional or emotionality if that's a word yeah um whether it's the uh the the lightness of the bike thing or the murders or i mean even the scene i love i love the scene with with joni and uh jane where Jane I, I, goes into the Chez Ami and yeah, talks to her. I, yeah, I really like that scene um, because Joni is is like in the middle of this grief and terror and Jane's just being Jane <laughs> and kind of not really knowing what's going on and kind of half understanding it, but just also being a dumbass. Yeah. And it's just it's it's just so charming, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought I thought it was going to swing the other way at the end. I thought she was going to end up killing Walcott. I thought she was going to like come in. Jane, yeah, the, they set it up yeah. that way, and as, yeah, as those yeah. Jane is going to burst through the door with her shotgun right, and light right. him up. Yeah, but uh, I really like this, and you know, she puts the she doesn't drink. She puts the drink down. I thought it was there's a lot of good, really good individual scenes in this. I think it's um, what I think I like about this one is that it slows everything down and it it does something that I feel like we kind of talked about in um, the first two episodes of the season, uh, a lie agreed upon, part one and two, mm-hmm. which is that it kind of felt redundant in a way, that, that two-parter, in that it was rehashing a lot of the themes and the ideas that they already covered in the first season and they were just doing it in like a more condensed package. I feel like this episode does largely the same thing, which is that it like reminds you of plot lines that are running uh, like Al or sorry, Seth and Alma and their relationship. And it sort of rekindles things a little bit. Um, It reminds you of, you know, Joni and Jane and where everything stands with those characters. And what it does is that it, um, it puts those storylines back in front of you. It changes things ever so slightly, but it does this really good job of, uh, why I sort of brought up the, how the production is working and that I'm starting to see after learning about the the production thing, which is the writers are designed to like assemble the plot ideas and sort of link them together so that mm. there's a way to do it, is that I'm really noticing on this uh, watch through how like thematically tight the plot lines become in interesting yeah. ways. They They really link together and it's definitely like this intentional thing that they're trying to do behind the scenes. I think that um, like there's the the mirroring is always something that's really uh, big in this show. And I think what this one's doing is it's kind of the things that are being mirrored are kind of like a heaven and hell aspect to it. So there's like uh, one of the, the there's like Hearst versus the camp, which is one type of way of looking at it. It's literalized in. Walcott represents Satan who's whispering into Cain's ear to kill his brother, you know, to cause mm-hmm. that kind of a downfall. Do I guess rightly, sir, that you and your brother do not deal happily with groups of men? Nor each other. Yet you have made a rich find and have done very well in beginning its development. State your business. Further development may require organization on a scale and dealings with men to which you and your brother are not suited. Or not disposed to attempt. With thieving bastard Cornishmen, you mean. Underground in the shafts. High graders, every one of them. 
The interests I represent have learned to deal effectively over the years with high grading and other forms of theft by employees. You ain't learned no effective method when it's my brother going against you. Against us in what sense? In all five fucking senses. More reason you and he might sever connections toward taking separate paths. I'm sitting here, ain't I? We would offer 200000 for an undivided ownership on your claim. We'd both have to fucking sell. I presume your brother has stays and encumbrances on your right to separate sale? He's encumbered every fucking breath I've ever fucking taken. There's this idea of like past versus future, which is always a thing in the Western, which is the, the bike is the la- the bike and the telegraph are the latest technological things to enter the town that are signifying that things are moving forward and that time is passing and the old ways aren't going to be working anymore. There's this um, idea. It's even it's even brought up in like thematically through the the point of the bicycle is that Tom uh, Nuttall has this line where he says. His bicycle navigates both quag, boardwalk, boardwalk versus quagmire with equal aplomb. Yes. And it's yes. really just the, like even that line just thematically matches this heaven versus hell thing that's going mm. on where there's like a there's a dark side and a light side to everything. And his bicycle is literally navigating through this and the town is cheering, hoping that things are going to go well as the devil is whispering in the background to try to take everything from everybody else. And... um. You no, know, biblically with the, the Cain and Abel, the brothers killing each other, it ties into that. I, I just think that the plot lines are so the plot lines so tightly wrap around ideas that it's it's the the real craft is when I see that you don't see that being so obvious until you think about it. Like there's no the, the scenes aren't structured to put together in such a way where you're like, oh, they're clearly trying to do this and this is gonna happen. It's only after it all happens and you look at it and you go like, oh. Like it's it's impressive how well they all link together, even though they feel very distinct from each other in the context of the episode. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would have thought about the uh, uh, the biblical connections there across, but I think you're you're totally right. Um, and you know, I think that's <clears throat> the mark of a good show is are the are the ones where you can look at them and see and and, and see how the writers are, or the creators are like, all right, this episode is about X, and how does that affect? Uh, every character in the show it doesn't have to be the same way it doesn't have to be the same thing but it's like is this episode about loss all right well who's lost something how does that affect this person how does this affect this you know i think i think that's a kind of um cohesiveness that a lot of modern shows end up sacrificing for quirky dialogue frankly yeah, or, or plot. Um, I would, to be more generous, it's probably yeah, plot. Yeah. Which this episode yeah. does not have a ton of plot in it. You know. Yeah, it's strange though. This show is so interesting in that in that regard because all it takes is like a drop of plot for this show. You know, you don't have to do much, and it's like every drop of plot is allowed to to kind of simmer a bit, and it's it's it still feels fairly satisfying. Like uh, the the scene where. Um, Walcott is writing the letter and so you're getting a yeah. little bit of you get a little bit of the Hearst stuff but not a ton but it's it, it's it's enough to keep you interested in in what's going on there and how that's gonna uh trickle down um yeah the Hearst the, you're talking about the scene where Walcott's writing the letter it's kind of unusual the the show doesn't do voiceover exposition yeah I was gonna a lot. say yeah the voiceover seemed kind of strange for this I can only think of Seth Bullock's letter which felt more 
allegorical than this. This is yeah. literally like Walcott sort of updating Hearst and the viewer about yeah. what's going on in the mines, which is that he's brought up all, Hearst has brought up all but two of the major claims, which is Alma in this Moe's manual, uh, the brother's mm-hmm. manual claim. Uh, and they are hiring Cornish and Germans to dig in the mines. And it's just an insight into the sort of brutality of what Hearst's operation was about, which is that the Cornish are known as, um, they hint at it, but the Cornish are known to be unionizers, which is interesting. And they're also oh, thieves, yeah. uh, or they're, they call them, what do they call them? They call them high graders in this, which is the term for people who steal gold when they're supposed to be uh, mining mm. for it. And it shows the brutality of Captain Turner, who's going to show up as a recurring character. But when he kills one of the Cornish, he tried to steal steals a gold nugget by shoving it up his ass. Man, I'll tell you, if you manage to get a gold nugget up your ass, you deserve, you deserve it to, keep it. to yeah. keep it. You know? Yeah. Could turn into is that how it turned into a watch in the Pulp Fiction? Was yeah, it just yeah, just the pressure? pressure. <laughs> it's like Superman turning a coal into a diamond. <laughs> just gotta uh, squeeze. Yeah, but yeah, like you get a little bit of that. Even I think it all comes down. It it comes down to the writing and the performances too. Because uh, even you get little bits like the scene, the scene with Alma and uh, Anna Gunn, whose character's Martha. name I can't remember, Martha. Martha. I found that scene riveting, and I could not even figure out why Alma was so mad. (laughs) The water is usually brought from the kitchen already at a boil. Please don't bother with the tea. It's no bother. It would hardly be a bother if I were only properly prepared. On a second opportunity, with adequate notification, we will meet you in order and readiness. I seem always to come upon you with inadequate notice. As you remarked, simple courtesy would forestall that. I'm trying to imagine what courtesy of mine would have forestalled the last awkwardness between us. Do you wish then to take Sophia under your care as well? As well as whom, Mrs. Garrett? Why, Mrs. Bullock, as well as your son. Whom else would I mean? Yeah, I got the implication of like, okay, Martha knows about what happened with with her, with Alma and Seth. But for some reason, Martha wanting to teach the kids like sets her off. Yep. And like, I don't know why, but it it's still engaging because everybody in this show is is reacting to something other than the words being said to them yeah and so even though you've got this little bit of plot about okay they're kind of moving the school thing around the fact that it plays out the way it does is just it just it's enough to 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 let you to let it cook a little bit yeah um just small character reactions yeah cause big problems it's just a really well done show in that regard and again like the scene with um jane and Joni. yeah is played in such a way where Joni is in a certain headspace and Jane's in a certain headspace and Joni's headspace leads to what happens at the end of the episode. And it's just, yeah, it's just a, it's just a, well, it's a show that, that is just so fires on all cylinders. Um, and it shows you how you can do so much with, I don't want to say so little cause each episode is very dense, but just as far as, you know, plot and stuff go, it doesn't take a lot to, to get you through one of these episodes and have you really kind of 
into what's going on. Yeah, Alma's story is a good example because it, it kicks off with the Martha scene, as you were talking about. And my interpretation as to why Alma gets upset is twofold. It's that she, you could, I guess you could either view it as Alma is annoyed that Martha is revealing that she wants to start a school, which could be interpreted, I suppose, as uh, Alma sees it as like, this person is so perfect that it annoys me. You know, like she's she's mm-hmm. she's doing something for the camp in a way that like her mining of the gold does not really line up with. There's like this altruism to Martha that could be irritating Alma. The other way to see it, I guess, is that she sees it as an indirect threat that Martha taking the school teacher position is going to take Sophia away from Alma. And yeah, Alma has, has already thinking. lost Bullock to Martha at that point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Alma clearly has insecurities about being a mother and stuff. And, yep. you know, Martha is so established at that already, you know, right. that yep. she's already taken Bullock back. You know, what's what's next? For yeah, her? Martha Martha basically represents to Alma like the best case scenario of all the things that Alma has going wrong, which is that she's pregnant without a husband, right? Mm-hmm. Like there, there's, that, there's that thing. She has this altruistic streak and that she's uh, got the man that she is pining for. And... To your point about the small storyline, the scenes that feed off of it are really just almost sort of like bad hissy fit childish things response yeah. to the to that. She has her conversation with Miss Isrenhausen, which is that she goes in and tries to yell at her, and Isrenhausen is just like, "Get the fuck out of my room!" And right. you know, yeah. it's like, and, and that the. The episode just ties into that. It's that Alma is handling her relationship in kind of a childish way and that like the the way that they have to move past this with Seth is like not the way that they're choosing to handle it. They're they're living in these childish moments instead of recognizing the greater good. Uh, yeah. But like literally for the Alma storyline, not a lot happens, but it spawns off the scenes that lead out of that, including the Ellsworth proposal scene at the very end yeah. is kind of related to that. Yeah, and I, I continue to find Alma very, very interesting as a character only because, well, because of how she is such an um, inversion or, or undercutting of the kind of character she would play in a traditional Western where the love interest character is, you know, fairly pure to a certain extent. Yes. Um, and Righteous. here righteous yeah and here like her righteousness is exposed as just being kind of like an entitled asshole yes and i and i really like that i i'm really interested in that because you know it 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 is so emphasized by the arrival of martha because martha is the only person in the camp who is blameless yep for stuff that's going on and it kind of uh really undercuts Alma's uh, self-perception, I think, yeah. which is, is very interesting. Martha's living the pain or despair. Damage doesn't end the world. So, like Martha's the living right. embodiment of that. She's yeah. kind of struggling through an incredibly difficult situation, but is holding... You know, the the other thing that probably pisses off Alma is that Martha is does just does a much better job of controlling her emotional response to these things. Like, she gets emotional in her argument with Alma, but it's still... She doesn't get to Alma's thing where she's like, I'm going to go yell at somebody down the hall of this hotel. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's 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 neat. I I always like Alma because Amy uh, always likes it when Alma gets put in her place in these episodes. <laughs> uh, she she likes Alma, but in the way that she finds her. Uh, me, me and Amy both find Seth and Alma to be a, a much more irritating pair 
in this yeah. watch through than they it's probably what you, you we've been saying is that like you're you're predisposed to think of them a certain way because it's a western genre and yeah. it's a TV mm-hmm. show and the the show really is trying to flip that around and not make them the people that you expect them to be. Yeah. And I don't know if we've really talked about this, but uh, as we were kind of discussing that scene, it, it really only occurred to me for the first time how much of a double Martha is for Alma in the way that um, Cy is a double for Al. Yeah. In that she is a single parent. Well, she's has a small has a younger child. Her husband was also killed. Yep. Although her husband was killed in an honorable way, whereas Alma's husband was. <laughs> that, that, just but that's being a the good. Ass. That's the good mirror. Uh, the good mirroring, right? Is that that's right, why, yeah, that's yeah. why Martha's in a better position in terms of perspective from other people. Yeah, and it's it's such a. It, I I could see Alma being so annoyed by that because like her trump card was well my husband was killed. Right. And then Martha comes in. It's like, well, yeah, my husband was killed too, but he was a soldier. Yes. <laughs> so it's like, he didn't just That's fall. just a, ri- a rich dumbass. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it is. They, uh, the show does that exceptionally well. I think it, it's, it's, it's done just so subtly um, that it, it, when you realize, you're like, oh, of course, it's obvious. But it, it's not, the show is not hitting you over the head with the fact that these two are supposed to be contrasting with each other all the time. Yeah. And that that, contrast fuels their uh, disagreements with each other and yeah. as much as the women of this era could disagree or at least the way that the show portrays their disagreements yeah doubles I find mirrors and doubles it's not something that really stood out to me for a long time it just in 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 general in stuff yeah um because I think my my less refined media brain, always saw stuff like that done much more uh, surface level where uh, it's clearly a gimmick, you know? Sure. Um, and as I've, as I've been watching stuff more recently and seen that stuff handled with a bit more uh, finesse, I do find it to be very effective and very interesting because you know, like David Lynch does it a lot. Uh, he's, he always has some sort of like doppelganger or, or mirror image of, of characters that, that create contrast. And it's, it's this show in particular, does it in a way that is simultaneously right in your face, but also very subtle. Yeah. You know, because like I said, the Martha and Alma thing didn't even really occur to me until we were just talking about it now. Yeah. It, it does, but it's all right there. It's all right there. Right, and it does it more obvious. A more obvious example is is Cochran talking to Sai about treating the Chinese horse, right? Which sure. is that two incredibly opposite characters talking about an issue. No one's with child. Doesn't may have clap. We'll take her off the firing line. With whatever intervening supervision. Take it, this new arrived Chinese horse to be under your control. Well evaluated, that. Well, I'd be available to see to their care like I do these here. Declined. With thanks. You may not be aware that beyond their afflictions, these girls are fucking starving to death. I ain't one, Doc. Holds the white man's the sole and only path. I strive to tolerate what I may not agree with, but those people's culture, their women are disposable. They they ship them unfed, replace them when they expire. 
They dose them with opium, I know, which I gather eases their pains. Well, under this arrangement, I withdraw my care for your whites. For Christ's sake, Doc. No, I need to live too. Raise your rates on these, then. Don't disrupt the other fucking equilibrium. I would see to those others pro bono. I know what that means. Prove to me you do. It won't cost you anything. Well, Jesus Christ. Here too, let me tolerate a different point of view. Sai has a like a terrific ending line here. He's, when when Cochran convinces him, um, Sai says, "Here too, let me tolerate a different point of view," which is just such a, <laughs> and it's a it's a very good Tolliver line to just show. Uh, he also has his thoughts. he says something around the lines of like. He's like, Doc, I ain't one to, ch- to judge another's culture. Just a, a terrific, <laughs> a terrific side thing. But it's, it's, um, the mirroring extends. I'm also starting to see like the way that I think Psy has been written along with Walcott is interesting. And like this, this episode is about, you know, the, the series itself is about, uh, forming community out of the sort of primordial chaos of what happened when it, when everyone found gold, everyone comes to this place and it's how, how do you organize yourselves and how do you build a structure that's going to create like something that people can live within. Mm-hmm. And so there's like, there's all these alliances and early on it was very much like a political alliance thing that they were trying to, to go around and they're, they're trying to sort of sort each other out and to, to move into teams in the first season that can allow for uh, people to come out on top. And this one, the, like the political, is still there. It's probably most overt in the opening scene, which is the, the like grab ankle conversation between mm. Seth and Al, which is about purely about the political space of how are they going to convince, how are they going to secure the camp from Hearst, and maybe they'll talk to Montana and be annexed by Montana instead of the Dakotas. But it's also it comes down into the um, the way that some of the characters are being. The alliances that are being built between people. So there's like Alan Seth, Joni and Jane, uh, Merrick and Blazanoff, uh, Martha and Alma. Like there, there are these new sort of al- Alma and Ellsworth. There are these alignments that are happening where people are trying to sort of build a community and a sense of strength with each other. And it's very interesting to me that the show's villains are not interested in community building at all. Like, so it's Cy and Walcott who are only there to dismantle those things. Or mm-hmm. in the case of Cy, Cy doesn't care at all about it. And that, that's, that comes through in his conversation with Cochran about it, which is that he's, he's a liar and he's very inconsiderate about what the other people are thinking or what other people are suffering through. And so yeah. I think that that's neat. I think it's just it's it's neat that the two the the most villainous characters just sort of sit outside of this and you know just thinking about it, that's why Sai is so angry when people abandon him because it's the one sort of like it's the one thing that's left of his humanity in a lot of ways is that he, if he, he wants any kind of relationship at all, but he's such a scumbag that he just can't have it because it's not within his nature to try to build something, build a relationship. Yeah, I've been trying to think about how I would describe that for some reason, this episode in particular, this one, and the last one have really made me take notice of Powers Booth's performance mm-hmm. and the way his his line delivery. <clears throat> and I've been trying to think about how I would describe it to somebody. And the best I can think of is imagine someone who's really excited that they found a t- 
pair of tight leather pants that fit. <laughs> like that's that's like the energy <laughs> of every energy. line that he drops is just like <laughs> I just I've got a pair of leather pants and I'm wearing them <laughs> and everyone's going to see them. <laughs> and they look good. They, look <laughs> they fit perfectly. Yeah, he's he's um he has a very specific energy in the show, a very um, I guess I would call it an iconic performance. He's 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 fascinating. It's it's so I know we've talked about this before a bit, but it's like it's so much Powers Booth. Yeah, it is. You know, it's like he doesn't. If you watch Tombstone, it's only like a couple clicks away from this, but yep. at the same time, it's it's such a. I can't imagine anybody else doing it. It's just married to the material perfectly. Yeah. He's he's his innate kind of sliminess perfectly marries what is written for Tolliver as to be his, his characterization. Um, yeah. It's just, he's really excellent. I, I think this is also a great Walcott episode. Um, it is. Yeah. I think this is the best episode with him. Oh yeah. So far. Yeah. He's, he's recovering from his beating. I, I do like the fact that he's getting more and more physically fucked up. Like his face is getting yeah. damaged from what's you know, going through this. It's, and, and that was what really um, worked for me too, is like he, keeps getting his ass kicked and he is just takes it because he knows that he deserves it. Yep. You the fucking cocksucker. I may well be. Did you just kill that girl in the sesame? I did not. That girl in the sesame as well. Well, whose blood's on you, fucking mother? My own. My name is Francis Wilcock. You find me untrue in any particular... I stay at the Grand Central Hotel. Who runs that joint? A grotesque named Farnham. You ain't lied so far. And it's there's and, and for someone like that who is such a um, considers themselves such a dom, you know, that's uh, him getting the shit kicked out of him for stuff that he's done. It, it, you, you, I feel like you, do you get the sense he's him. a dom? I guess, I guess I, I guess well, I would disagree. I, I think he thinks he is oh, okay. Like that, like that kind of the, the kind of, uh, the way that he, uh, presents himself to, to the, to the women at the, uh, chaise Ami is very much a, 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 a position of dominance, even though is it Carrie, uh, it, the, the girl, girl he killed. Yep. Who who knows that he's not, and and exploits that you yeah, know, when they're together. I, I guess I would wouldn't you, would you not think that Walcott himself knows what he is, and his act is different than yeah, what he thinks. Yeah, he I is. should say yeah. He, I should say he doesn't think he's a, he pre, he likes to present himself sure, as a, yeah. as 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 dominant, but he knows that he's not. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, and so when he when any time somebody stands up to him because he's literally like, sorry he's literally a sycophant to the person that they're actually scared right, of. Right, you know. Right. Yeah. And you keep expecting him to hit back, but he never does. And the only time that he's really lashed out is when he just murders three women in cold blood. Yeah. And it's it's just a really interesting 
they're they're playing him in a really interesting way that's making me I'm finding him more interesting in the fact that he just keeps getting his ass kicked because yeah. before it's like ah oh, yeah he's walking around he's, I work for Hearst or whatever yeah but now that they're kind of getting into what this guy's about and how he reacts to certain situations now I'm finding him a lot more interesting yeah I I'm impressed with Walcott on this walk uh, walk through this watch um, of the series I I think that he. I think he's a character who is subtle enough that you kind of miss what he's doing or like what he represents yeah. and where he stands. I I think his dialogue in this one is excellent. Like it it's resetting what he is, which is this sort of herald of Hearst and he's out there to take all the claims and to set things up and to get people to really sort of like betray their own innate goodness is like he is that sort of snake whispering in their ears about what they want to do. I think that his um one of the strengths of Milch as a writer is just that his he he does a lot of different things well and I think his his dialogue is really good and it's also the use of what he's using his writers for which is to pull these thematic threads together. His dialogue um Walcott and Moe's manual, I think it's Moe's manual. Um their back and forth is really terrific, I think. Um Walcott is always talking business and is using very business language in what he's trying mm. to convince Moe's manual of doing. And what Manuel always does in response is that he takes the business language and he somehow makes it a personal statement about himself that's gone on. So yeah. examples are, your brother's going to move us against us in what sense? And he says, all five fucking senses. Uh, Walcott says, are there any stays or encumbrances on your claim? And his brother says, he's encumbered every fucking breath I've ever fucking taken. He says, Walcott says, I'm going to give you $200,000 at execution. He says, we've already executed. And uh, it ends with the, 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 the desperation of their final scene, which is that Moses running off, uh, you know, it, it, Walcott's saying, will you go to Saitolver and get the money and stop talking about this? And he says, is that all it's going to take to forget my fucking brother? And he's, and Walcott says, money has many properties that can remedy that or something like mm. that. There's, there's just this, um, I really like the, I guess you'd call it puns, but it's like, it's wordplay in between their dialogue. And I yeah. think that it's really, it's just, I think that the Mose Manual guy, all of his responses are really fantastic. I particularly like these, he's encumbered every fucking breath I've ever taken. I just, I really get the sense of, Walcott's effectiveness is really playing on this guy's sort of personal weaknesses and the personal weaknesses are what's going to drive Walcott and Hearst to be able to take the claim from him as you're recognizing that Manuel is not really into the plot that they've tricked him into doing and that yeah. he's having second thoughts about it. Are we through here? Can we finally complete our transaction? Fucking happens. The fucking gun he was cleaning when he shot himself was mine. Is that so? And I'm asking to know if a person of the mind to blame me will have a way to recover that fucking bullet. I expect not, Mr. Manuel, or that other than yours, any such mind is in the camp. And suggest you think of other things, like the money that Mr. Tolliver is waiting to present you at the Bella Union. That easy! You forget a fucking brother! Money has properties in this regard. There are no remedies discovered yet. Sovereign against sentimental remorse. Close your eyes! Yeah, I actually, I really like that uh, from a Walcott standpoint. I really like that scene, especially at the end when Manuel, like, freaks out and runs away. And Walcott just keeps talking in a way that feels a little bit like he's 
monologuing, but yes. it's that kind of thing where he's still talking to the guy, even though he's running. You know, I I, yep. I don't really know how to describe it, but uh, I, I I really like that bit. Um, he ends it by he ends it by another tie back to Walcott is that he looks at the Chinese prostitute in the cage who's looking at him and he says, "Close your eyes," which is the Walcott's greatest weakness and fear is to be seen, right? And to see, right, yeah. to see, to have this woman who probably doesn't even understand him, but has been like watching him and listening to what he's talking about is his greatest irritation in life. I w- does Manuel come back at all? He does. Yes, he does. Yeah, I'm curious if uh, Milch trained his um, school <laughs> schoolyard pension for calling out the things that they're most sensitive about in, in dialogue on a TV show millions of people are going to watch for this guy. Because I know this guy from, um, he was in uh, a movie called Identity. Yeah, he's one of, he's one of those guys. You recognize yeah. him. Yeah. And well, the thing about him is, I think he might have been on the X-Files too. He's got this condition where his eyes constantly vibrate. Oh, okay. <laughs> and so I think it's something I, I know. Uh, Frank Langella, the actor, uh, the actor Frank Langella has that too, and he can control it. So I think it's something you can control. But it's like in identity, he just like lets it fly, oh, nice. and his eyes are just like buzzing Jiggling. all over the place. <laughs> so anytime I see him now, I, I immediately recognize him because his eyes kind of vibrate a little bit, and that's the kind of thing that I feel like Milch would pick up if on. given the opportunity. He'd be like, look at this fucking guy. He can't <laughs> even stop his eyes from moving. <laughs> Not going to go after his weight. It's too obvious. We're going to go yeah. after his eyeballs. Yeah, uh, Moe's does return. He becomes a little bit of a recurring character. I also, as far as puns go, I also really like the line from Al when he, uh, um, he's trying to get in, in the good graces with the telegraph operator when he, he <laughs> says, uh, preference of tail, tall, or otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I like um, that whole scene is fantastic. He's just Al talking. To, I like Blaz, uh, Blazenkov's, um He's like, I do not think my English is sufficient for you, Mister. <laughs> How do you do? No, 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 no. How do you do? You are the master of the fucking secret code and all the other fucking secret things, isn't that right? No? Not. So secret. Oh, it's some fucking skill. I'm sure people are trying to bribe you right and left. Huh? No, no. I'm not allowed. Oh, nor am I. No. None of us are. We are everyone strictly forbade. That's the fucking beauty of it all. I think I haven't enough English for you, Mr. Swaringen. Bullshit. You have the perfect exact fucking amount. My only question for you, young man, is your feelings on your prick being sucked constantly and without charge, yeah? (laughs) 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 And thus, uh, you encounter one of our wonderful, meaningless American traditions, Mr. Blazanov, the tall tale conversation and, and, and tales and good nature. The gem. Blazanov, my salute. Very convenient to your place of business, huh? Via private walkway, which I will employ as we speak, or via the public thoroughfare. Visit, and you will experience a tradition only used in this camp or my place by newly arrived telegraph operators fucking free. Be their preference of tail, tall, or fucking otherwise. And by all means, welcome to America. 
and Merrick's continuing infatuation with um like the educated who come in Merrick is basically mm. desperate for a friend. He wanted to be friends right. with the teacher, he wants to be friends with the telegraph officer. Um but yeah, it's uh so Al's whole point in those scenes is to try to control the telegraph because the telegraph is obviously um a key point of information that he wants to be in control of. I feel like I identify with Merrick in that in that respect because I remember when I was in high school um I, pl- I played hockey <clears throat> and I knew I was out of place the one time we were coming back from practice and uh they uh they're asking the coach like we had a younger coach like oh did you see any see any good movies lately and he's like I don't know what's out and everybody else was like oh man there's something about Mary it's so fucking good mm-hmm. and I was like have you guys seen Philadelphia <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was like ah this might not be for me. <laughs> the cue, the cue that Springsteen song is you're yeah. just walking away from the bus with your hands in your pockets. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, at least you didn't say Dangerous Minds or something like that. No. Um, <laughs> so the uh, there's something. Oh, the other the other aspect is just before I forget about it. The um, the thematic thing about the writers pulling stuff together. I really think a, a little a beautiful piece of writing is in the the Joni and Jane scene that ties into the Walcott and Joni scene later on, mm. which is that uh, their alliance or their community building between Jane and Joni is that Charlie clearly sees them as like someone who can, they, through their mutual support, they can prop each other up through the difficulties that they're going through. So Charlie wants to cure Jane of her drunkenness, which he thinks is she's on the borderline suicidal in his uh, monologue with Bill about it and he wants to protect Joni who seems to be semi-suicidal jo- Joni I, I don't know if an interpretation is that she's kind of sitting and waiting for Walcott to come and kill her and finish the job mm-hmm. but the the reason that I like it is that the scene where Jane and Joni talk accomplishes a lot through a prop which is that the bottle of whiskey is brought out and Jane says she'll drink with Joni but because they're community is being built between them. Jane doesn't drink the drink, right? So Jane leaves the bottle behind. When Walcott comes in, he looks at the bottle and says, what is this? Have you been waiting for me or something like that? And Joni says, that bottle was for me and my friend Jane. And the bottle that was then symbolizing Jane getting over, getting off the wagon and dealing with her problem or alcoholism becomes the weapon that allows Joni to deal with Walcott. At that point. And right. it's just this, it's really this like clever, subtle handoff of the bottle symbolizes the thing that they're building between the two of them. And they both function not obviously as a symbol, but as like a direct thing in the scene that is useful to the characters. I don't know. I found, I found it really impressive to do something like that, which is to just have, have this bottle literally be handed off and it means something to each character in each of the scenes but for a totally different reason and it fits within the reality of what the story is at the same time i, I thought mm. it was good yeah and also a great advertisement for uh, basil hayden yes bourbon. <laughs> kentucky bourbon i should hope so yeah. do the uh, refined spirits make you uh what's the jane what does jane say oh uh, i can't remember i fucked up the quote refined spirits make me I'll put the clip in. That's enough. <laughs> Does he pose a further danger to you, the cocksuckers? That's that's what's got you sitting in the dark. Sitting, counting, is waiting. Oh, ha, ha. 
I'll say that's a attitude fit for darkness. Not knowing what else to say. We're pretending that it ain't familiar. Anyways, Adam, I'm pleased to meet you. Pleased to meet you, Jane. Thank you for coming by. Don't you want your drink? I guess I'll leave it. Refined spirits will sometimes convulse me. Yeah, I, I again, I just think it's it's a very clever show all around. They they always find it, there's there's few things in the show that um don't have multiple layers to it, um except for maybe EB's toothache. I'm not really sure what's going on there. But. <laughs> I I still laugh at that. See where Richardson puts his dirty hand into uh, yeah, into his yeah. mouth. Yeah, they all, they just want to see the bicycle be ridden and Farnham's being. I miserable. mean, uh, EB is lucky that Richardson came in to ask permission because he could have choked to death. Yeah, yeah. What does he have? He says he has a, a clove in his tooth or something. I think yeah, he's trying to cure his toothache. Return of the uh, the Irish kid who I, I forgot yes. to mention when he showed up the first time, is the uh, the, the bully from A Christmas Story. Oh, he is? Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he's, I guess he's aged well, you'd have to say. Maybe, well, I guess yeah. it's only been, what, 15 years at that point? Maybe that makes sense. Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah, I, 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 I recognize him. I know him from... Uh, he has a small part in Freddy versus Jason. Okay, <laughs> so that was that was where I first put those two things together, and I was like, "Oh, okay, yeah, he's in, you know, the guy from that." Okay, so I know yeah, him. I think the last time he we saw him, stuff. he was the one who gave the letter to Farnham. I think was the uh, Wild Bill's yeah. letter. To you Farnham. know, he's a really good example of me not knowing how this show works from a casting standpoint. Because you know, you were talking about how it became like, "Oh yeah, people just hang around the set," blah blah blah. So this guy hasn't been in the show. For like a season, at least, yeah. A season is he someone they just? Ca- I feel like there's enough people just hanging around. Yeah, they don't need to go out of their way to call this guy and have him come back. <laughs> Milt likes people. I think that's what yeah. I'm picking up from. De- is that he likes certain actors, um, especially for like four lines? You know, just yes. get yeah, get someone the, else. The shit kickers outside to play the bartender. It's not even really. I mean, the the Richardson could just come in and tell E B. That's why oh, yeah. he wants to go yeah. out. You know, yeah. Definitely. Um, one of the milchy sort of backstories to this is that we haven't talked about Ellsworth's uh, proposal to Alma yet. Oh, sure. But which is a really nice scene. Um, but a very uh, there was some conflict in the Deadwood Bible about it. I guess that uh, Jim Beaver's wife had actually died before season two started production on itself. She had terminal oh, really? terminal lung cancer. Uh, there's just this little bit in the. Um, the Bible, the Deadwood Bible about it, just about um, the discomfort that a lot of the cast members had. Just uh, Tim Ben had, sure. had apparently saying, I can't believe David's making you do this. You just lost your wife and David's written this scene for you in which you talk about losing it. I don't understand how he can, he can put you through this. Uh, Jim Beaver says, I thought for a second I told him, you don't understand. It's a gift from David. It's a blessing for me to play it. Mm. Uh, the actors who know how this feels are rare and I hope that I'll be able to deliver on the performance I believe David gave me that scene for precisely this reason, to allow me to use art to find some meaning in a meaningless thing that happened to me. I consider it one of the finest gifts I've ever received, and I love him for it. Um, you know that when Milch pulled him into the room, he's like, Jim, I'm going to write your dead wife into the script. 
<laughs> now we have two options here. One, we can make it touching, or two, I'm just going to fucking roast you for it. <laughs> Please make Which it touching. Which one would you prefer? <laughs> Please make it touching, David. Yeah, it's... um. So it, it's, it has one of those sort of just weird backgrounding things, which is it is a strange yeah. choice to put that into. I, I like that scene though. It's um, Ellsworth continues to be a charming character, and uh, yeah, he's great. Alma's reaction to it. I think that both actors are excellent in that one. I, I like Alma's reaction to his thing, and I like his final line of uh, concluding the whole sorry proceeding or whatever he says as he gets onto his knee. It's it's, it's a nice scene between those two. Yeah. Yeah, it had um, it's a great scene. It definitely had uh, high school, <laughs> high school. I'm asking this girl out, and she has to figure out a way to very nicely tell me she's not interested. Vibes yep. to it. Yeah, no. <laughs> Poor Ellsworth, which is everyone knows is the most devastating emotional wound you can suffer I'll, at any we, age. We can talk to this. We can talk about this later. She said. Um, anything I'm else? kind of sort of talking to someone. What, is, what does that mean? I don't know. Is that a no? Is that what you're saying? No? We're aging ourselves. There's some there's a modern interpretation of these things, I think. Um, anything else about this one that we want to talk about? I, I, looking over my notes, I think that we've had covered everything. Um, uh, the only other thing that I, I wanted to call out was um, how, how much I like Dan being freaked out by... <laughs> <laughs> discovering that Al is talking to the severed head. I, I honestly forgot last episode that they that Al talks about talking to himself in this episode. Yeah. It, it wasn't done as any kind of like setting the table for it. But yeah, Al, Al uh, makes literal the stuff that we had talked about last time as subtext, which is funny. Yeah, and he's well, disgusted about the, the head in the box. It also makes literal, I believe last episode you asked me if I ever talked to myself. Right. And I said no, but I generally talk to my dog which is yep. what Ellsworth does in this. Yeah, that's true. It, Al just talks to the, the, the head of the chief. Yeah. I love, Al talking to the chief is funny when he like brings him out onto the, the balcony. Yeah. And he's, <laughs> he's like, forgive the low vantage, but it, it, uh, it holds, my, holds me up in higher esteem if no one sees me up here talking to you. Um, yep, the Indian head continues. And the, the episode itself has a lot of monologues. It has uh, – Ellsworth is a monologue. Al has a monologue, and then Charlie Otter has a monologue when he's talking to Bill's grave. Um, mm, about that was a nice scene too. That's I a good that scene. scene. Yeah. I, I yeah. always, I find they play the right music under those scenes when they're talking to Bill's grave. It's like this sort of twangly, uh, very light guitar stuff. But uh, Dan Kelly continues to be exceptionally good as Charlie Otter. Um, yeah, with his dealing with his frustrations about what he needs to do. Anything else about this one? Childish things? Mm, I don't think so. That's it. I think we are done with this one. The next one is going to be called Amalgamation and Capital. But uh, yeah, I, I like this one. I, I like these sort of uh, settle in and sit and watch uh, various scenes go by. Um, and I thought the dialogue was very sharp in this one. I thought that thematically it was super tight. Just great. Just great wrapping of stories around these narrative poles that they set up and then uh, just proceed to see how the characters react to them. So that's it. Thanks, everybody, for listening to our coverage of Childish Things on the Something Pretty Podcast. You can support the show at patreon.com slash file. Support all the shows over there, including this one. Clay, do you have anything you want to say before we get out of here? Uh, yeah, I've also I've got a comic book out right now. Generation uh, Batman White Knight presents Generation Joker. Um, issues one and two are available, so check that out. And also, uh, I'm, I'm, I've been watching through Columbo. Yes. And we're, we're coming up on, on the last... Uh, iteration of Columbo, which will feature 
Ian McShane. So oh, nice. look forward to me uh, going off on a number of <laughs> tangents about that after I watch that episode. Good, good. What year was that done? I want to say early 90s, oh, okay. I think. Yeah. Because I, I didn't know this. Columbo's really weird when you go back and you look at the seasons because it's not spaced out like a normal TV show. Like at a certain point, it turned into like a movie of the week thing. Yes, yeah. And uh, they actually stopped it in 1979 and then didn't do another one until 1989. So there's a big jump. Yep. And then the uh, the last few seasons are, uh, it's like a season of six, a season of four, and then a season of like 14. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what was going on there, but a lot of this jumping is around. based completely on Peter Fox. Um, availability or probably yes yeah yeah cool that's it childish things thanks everybody for listening hope you all have nice bike rides down the boulevard and uh we'll be back next episode with amalgamation and capital thanks for listening see you next time i had a wife took by typhus and our baby girl so sorry mr elsewhere oh thank you anyways i'm a acquainted with certain experiences. Throwing up mornings as an example. I see. And I'd say, not claiming credentials for raising a family, as my time with them was brief, but I'd hope it had testified to willingness as a candidate for marriage and so forth, offering myself. Completing the sorry presentation. (laughs) 